Hi, Jim Kosho here from Dunn Lumber. Welcome to today's Dunn Solutions podcast, where we're committed to providing trusted industry knowledge for the contractor and trade professional. Today, we'll hear from lawyer Seth Milstein. Seth has been a construction lawyer in Seattle since 2004. His practice is devoted to construction litigation, providing counsel to owners, contractors, and suppliers, primarily related to liens, bonds, defects, and contract matters. In this episode, Seth discusses 10 contract clauses that may make or break a project. And Seth also shares how to write a two-page contract without forfeiting your lien rights. This was recorded at the Master Builder Association's Remodelers Council Dinner on June 23, 2022. Good evening. My name is Joseph Irons. I'm the Building Industry Association and Washington President. So when you're a member of the Master Builders Association of King and County, you're automatically a member of the State Building Industry Association of Washington. So the Master Builders helps run events, politics locally to make housing more affordable, try to make our job a lot easier. At the state level, they do it at the state level. Um, being president, some of my goals there are trying to streamline permitting. Do you guys all think permitting is awesome now? <laughs> no? Yeah, none of us do. And every jurisdiction is taking longer and longer, so we're trying to fight at the state level to make it more efficient. It's not easy. Uh, we also are fighting on workforce development and just trying to make it more profitable and more easy for our builder members to actually stay in business or one thing we'd like to say is you can't make housing more affordable by making it more expensive to build. It just doesn't add up, and that's what they're doing right now. One other program, which you'll hear a little more about from Jackson Maynard, who's our general counsel at the Building Industry Association in Washington, is a contracts program that they started. There's like 28 different contracts, so when you're looking to get a contract to get in the door, that's a great start. When you're looking to sort of customize it, you got set there to make it a little more customized to how you do business. I know them both personally. They both try to keep me out of trouble, which is a lot of work. So I have a lot of attorneys I know. Um, but we also have a certified builder program. Many of our members are certified builders. I'm a certified builder. It just goes a step above the average builder member. Um, who's all a certified builder in the room? Can we get some hands raised? Yeah, so we have probably a half dozen in here. But it, it's a pretty easy program to get through. You have to be in business five years. I'm gonna do the highlights. They're gonna ask for two references from suppliers, two client references, two vendor references, two subcontractor references, I think there's six references. And hopefully you can supply that many good references or you shouldn't be a certified builder, but it definitely gives you a cut above the rest, so I would definitely look into that. Now I gotta find this long script. These attorneys have these long bios I gotta read through. Let's welcome Jackson, General Counsel for the Building Industry Association in Washington. He's a Florida native. Jackson holds a BS in International Affairs. That was back in 1996. MA in History in 2004. Then it goes backwards with a JD in 2001 from Florida State University. He's worked as an attorney for 19 years and admitted to the bars for Florida, District of Columbia, Texas, Washington State, all federal courts of Florida and Washington State. Federal 9th, 11th, Court of Appeals, U.S. State Supreme Court. And Jackson's free time, um, he actually ran for Congress last election session in the 10th District. Fortunately, he did not get elected because now we've got to retain him as general counsel. But he does have some political aspirations, and he's a big force at BIW. Um, in his spare time, he probably won't tell you this, but he likes to sue the governor. And recently we sued the governor at BIW and won $70,000 in return. 
Um, but the main reason we sued the governor, they weren't following the laws or rules. We're allowed to have one of our industry representatives sit on the building code council, and the governor didn't select our appointment, went outside of what they were supposed to do. So uh, the building industry, we want to hold all government accountable, the R's, the D's. I care who's good for housing. I don't care what political party. What's good for housing? What's good for small businesses? We're all small businesses. We need to support that. And Jackson's there fighting that fight. But he's going to talk about our contracts program. So here you go, Jackson. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Appreciate it. That was much more of a detailed introduction than I was anticipating, but, uh, but thank you, Joseph. Uh, so glad to be here before you. As Joseph said, I'm the general counsel for the Building Industry Association of Washington. So the state association, all of you, in addition to being members of this local association, uh, which is a fantastic one. I was talking with Jessica and Caroline in the, uh, at the registration desk, and we were agreeing that it was, uh, I believe, the oldest in the nation, or one of the oldest, uh, and one one of the largest as well in the nation. So very important to our associations, producing great leaders like Joseph and our other senior officers uh, in a great tradition uh, here as well. But I've been a lawyer for about 20 years. Incidentally, I talked to Nicole right before this started, and I think I can reveal this. Um, you all deserve a round of congratulations because this is the largest gathering of people in history who have voluntarily appeared to hear two lawyers speak. So <laughs> congratulations. Um, uh, I, I love my job. As I said, I've been a lawyer for over 20 years. Uh, last four have been uh, with BIW. And you guys are, and gals, are the most fun. You're, I like to say you're the least pretentious, successful people I've ever met in my life. I mean, uh, the, what you do in providing shelter, the basic human need for people uh, and, and making their lives better uh, is just phenomenal. And to the extent that we at the state level working with the local associations can help make that a little bit easier, that's what, uh, the, that's what our state association is about and certainly what our legal department is about. So part of my job and one of the benefits of your membership is that anyone in this room can call me for legal guidance at any point. Uh, so if you are running into a contract issue or an employment law issue uh, or anything related to your business, you get a free phone call that you can call me or my associate general counsel, Brooke Frickleton, who's a fantastic lawyer as well. And we will field those calls and try to uh, point you in the right direction. I had a call just the other day, someone, I've, I've been pulled into a mediation. What is a mediation? What, you know, how do I do that? I've got this employment issue and we will try to point you in the right direction. If it's a little more detailed or requires a little more research or actual representation, we can't represent all 8,000 of you, unfortunately, all the members of the state association individually, but we would refer you to Seth or to other uh, attorneys uh, and be able to give you some good names of good attorneys that are in the industry. Um, we have a, a great legal committee uh, as well, and a lot of good lawyers on that. So just want to let you know that that's one of the benefits of membership that, that all of you have. I prefer you call me uh, about your business. Please don't call me about family law issues or criminal law uh, issues, pre preferably. Um, don't make me your one phone call. Okay, I'll just you know <laughs> phrase it that way. But, uh, but feel free to, to call uh, you know, on other issues. And as I said, we routinely uh, field those types of uh, calls and try to point people in the right direction. 
As a part of that, um, and, and a program that we've started because of those calls is our contract subscription service that Joseph mentioned a moment ago. So I would get calls from people who, that were in a contractual dispute with a client, and they would say, well, what do you think I should do? And my, my question was always the same. Okay, well, what does your contract say? And inevitably, there would be this long pause, either because they have no idea what their contract says because you know they downloaded it you know 20 years ago. I think you could download things 20 years ago, um, and they haven't really looked at it since. Or even worse, occasionally they'll say, "I have no contract. It's a handshake deal." Uh, and you know, as a lawyer, of course, that that kind of terrifies me, right? Because the contract helps. You know, good fences make good neighbors. When everybody knows the rules and uh, it's all down there and the lines are all clear, you know what's going to happen and you can prevent problems a lot of times. Can't guarantee it, but um, but you can uh, avoid a lot of problems that come up. So we developed uh, this contract service. Uh, so we have over. Um, over two dozen uh, contracts for this organization, uh, many of them special in remodeling. So we have different business models if you want a cost plus uh, contract or a fixed price contract, depending on how your business model is going. I think mo most people are moving towards the cost plus model in light of some of the supply chain issues and some of the, the cost things, you can kind of control it. And then we have all of the addenda that you would likely need uh, as well. So subcontracts, uh, and it's drafted by one of our attorneys on our legal committee, Heather Burgess, who's a fantastic attorney. Um, and we don't just throw the contracts at you, um, and all of them are easily downloadable, downloadable and modifiable, but we also give you training videos that we recorded uh, actually with some of our certified builders. So Joseph and Melissa both helped out in uh, putting both the videos and reviewing the contracts. But so you can actually see the training, you can understand the contracts and how best to kind of fit it in with your business. We still recommend that you find good attorneys like Seth to review the contracts if you've got a special business model and to make sure that you're taken care of, but at least you've kind of jump-started that, that process. So glad to be here. I think I'm kind of the warm-up act uh, for Seth. So I'm like great white to his Bon Jovi, I guess, I'm not sure. I used that example, that was the first concert I ever went to, believe it or not. I won tickets and I could not give them away back in middle school, so. Anyway, um, thanks again, happy to be here, and uh, I'm gonna hand it over to Joseph, who I think will introduce Seth. They say you can't trust attorneys, and I would start with Jackson there. He said Seth's a good attorney. Seth is more than a good attorney. He's a fantastic attorney. In this room, we all do better, best work, and we want the better and best attorneys. Seth has done my own contract, as well as many others, but the last rewrite of it. And the best thing about that is you want an attorney you can trust, that knows your contract, that when the, something hits the fan, you know they're there to help. But in 2020, we had a client that thought they had financing different. Everything got shut down. We were in the middle of construction. They owed us over half a million dollars at this point. And with a good attorney, we helped guide that, get a lien on the property. With the client happy about getting a lien on the property, we charge 18% per annum interest. They don't want that interest, it's not good, so we help them get financing. But having the advice of a good attorney by your side, we got paid, we got paid in full. We got 18% interest, crazy. Um, I got them a better deal. We're actually doing a primary bathroom remodel for them now. So having someone there to help guide and make sure you're educating everyone and making sure communication stays good throughout it is what it all matters. But I would have been in bad shape if I didn't have a good contract to back me up. 
So for me, it was looking at the contract, making sure we're following through with the terms of the contract, and make sure you go through that contract with your clients. I know I do. I enjoy it. It's fun. Um, but it's how we do business, and you want to make sure the contract is how you do business. So Seth Milstein has 18 years of experience practicing law in Washington. I think I met him back then. I was heckling in one of the seminars he was giving. Um, but Seth is fantastic. His practice is devoted to construction litigation matters. His firm's pillar law provides counsel to owners, contractors, suppliers, primarily relating to liens, bonds, defects, contract matters. And I look forward to hearing what you have to say tonight, Seth. Okay. About 50% of what Jackson and what Joseph said is true. Uh, the rest is not. But this is kind of a good marriage, I think, of uh, what the BIAW is offering and kind of what we deal with in the trenches here. Because I said to Joseph at the beginning, a contract is like a soup. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I meant a suit because tailoring is important, meaning there's different ways to tweak it, essentially. And so we're gonna be talking about that. We're gonna be talking about some of the basics. Um, we have a video clip. It's a comedian that I just randomly saw in New York. And I think the themes are extremely similar to what I do day in and day out and how I feel about talking to people about law generally. It's not a, a topic that people love to hear. So thank you for being here. And this is Daniel Simonson. Uh, hello. Uh, hi, uh, I'm from Norway, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I always ask them to mention uh, I'm Norwegian up top, or as people uh, doubt I'm a real person. Because nobody speaks uh, English this way. I don't even know uh, why I sound like this myself. <laughs> uh, I just started to talk and this is how it came out. <laughs> and immediately I was like, oh no. <laughs> uh, that guy's great right there. Uh, something is wrong. <laughs> but I just came from backstage. There was lots of mirrors in my room. Wherever I turned my head, there was a mirror, you know? So you can look at your own doubt. All right, we're gonna come back to uh, Daniel, who I think deserves a lot more uh, notoriety. So if you substitute in uh, everything he's saying about being Norwegian and speaking in front of people making him nervous, I think you can just throw the word lawyer in there and I think it would all be extremely, extremely accurate. And so here is my lawyer promise to you. So I think you can do a really good contract in two pages. I really do. That's why I read about how overloaded everyone is, is that it's pretty important to streamline and to make sure that you've got it really lean and mean. So that's what we're striving for in no particular order. Number one is warranties. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean it's number one. And um, how many of you thought that there's an automatic one-year warranty in Washington for construction work? Did some people think that? Um, the answer, as the rest of you uh, thought, is there is not. There is not. 
If you find that statue, please send it to me. I've been asking for this for 18 years now, and I've been striking out all over the place. So having a one-year warranty is a great idea. First, most people do it. Second of all, it's a perfect opportunity to uh, tamp down problems and uh, be there for customer service. So I have a feeling you all know that, but what the interesting points that I wanna talk to you about here is, let's start with exclusions. This is probably the most important thing in the contract. And the reason for that is what you're gonna exclude from the warranty is arguably as important as the warranty, arguably. Because what you wanna think about in this section is what's something someone's called you about that's kinda wacky that you're thinking there's no way I should be responsible for coming back for that. That's something you want to try to exclude. I think, um, and again, every industry is different. Um, if I'm doing a contract for someone, I have a brief interview with them and kind of figure out what they're looking for, what they're using already. Then the next question is, what exactly is the warranty process? in terms of notices. I think we live in an awesome state, but we probably have the worst state in the country for notice provisions. The issue with the warranty is, you know, what standard you're gonna uh, build to, as I, I gave a really simplistic example here, that if certain trades have trade guidelines, that if you're comfortable with them, which you should be, like the PDCA, painters and decorators, you'd wanna say, you know, we'll, we'll paint to that standard. So then when someone late at night has a rough night and comes out with their iPhone camera and comes right up to the wall and sees all the defects. It's a lot easier to say, hey, you're really crazy, not just because you are, but because of the PDCA um, standards that we did not, uh, that we did meet. We were six feet back and you hold a light however you hold it, not like that. So, you know, Tying it to a standard is really good um, if you can. It's much harder for um, residential remodels though. I mean, you can say the industry standards are better. What this does, and I don't think there's a perfect way around it, so I do wanna apologize to everyone because you came here with extremely high hopes and Joseph kept trying to, I don't know if you noticed that, do a really good job of tamping those down by basically saying, hey, the customers you deal with and the way you handle the problems goes a lot further than the contract. Tying it to a standard is really, really important. No matter how you write the standard, you're going to probably need uh, an expert to weigh in on it if it hits heavy litigation, okay? Because even if you have it totally tailored to the PDCA standards, two different experts can argue about what, what a word means in the standards. And so you can truly have issues with whatever. Workmanlike manner, uh, industry standards are good. What you don't wanna do is uh, something to the customer's satisfaction. That would be bad. So um, let's move on from warranty. Um, one other thing, does the warranty extend suit limitations Draft it with a big no, and we're coming to number three shortly, so hang tight. I really like this provision. Um, it would be a corrections clause slash uh, punch list. You really wanna dial this in and set out the procedure. Obviously, the punch list is a separate deal. It's a list that you punch, as you know, it used to be. But you want it in the contract, and you know, arguably, the most important thing in here is this one. You'll find a lot of times, I'm sure I could see a lot of heads nodding, 
that the customer starts monkeying around with it or has their next door neighbor come in and says, oh, I'm a contractor and you need to pound that baseboard in. In theory, that should get you entirely out of jail if you have a well-drafted deal here that basically says, hey, if they haven't done these things, given you the opportunity, given you a one clear punch list at the project termination, um, it's theirs. And um, I, it probably varies from county to county, but as I said, we, we have a terrible state for notice provisions, meaning if you don't give notices properly, you can be totally out, which is kind of unusual. You would think Washington would be much more of kind of a feel-good place saying, hey, everyone knew there was a problem and you guys should work it out. But our Supreme Court in uh, a case from 2003, I believe, says that's not the case. So why I like that is, is that if they don't follow the uh, notice provisions, the customer, hopefully you can use that to your advantage. The rule that if you don't follow the notice provisions, you're out, is not as well developed in residential construction. It's, it's much more well developed in government and commercial projects, but it would be a pretty easy analogy to residential. This is why this part is added. The finder fact, that would be you know the judge, jury, or whomever it is, arbitrator, shall strictly construe this and all other notice requirements. And fortunately, I haven't had to test that, and I could see uh, an arbitrator, where these usually go to arbitration, who's 99% chance a homeowner and 0% chance a contractor could figure out a way in an arbitration to read around this, but I think this is a real helpful way to uh, do a wink and a nod at that 2003 case called Mike M. Johnson that says, notice is critical and important. And so that's what you're setting up here. But more importantly, you're setting up the ability to avoid problems, right? That's what the punch list is for. Set out the procedure, though, in the contract. Suit limitations and venue. The simple rule is this. In Washington, if there's nothing in the contract, but it's a written contract about how long you have to sue, it's six years on a written contract and three on a verbal agreement, okay? That's the statute of limitations. That's the outer limit, okay? That's the default if you say nothing else. But courts have really been, I'd say, kind of aggressive in favor of contractors, this is good, saying you can limit that you can reduce it as long as it's reasonable. So the question becomes, what is a reasonable reduction? And for better or worse, um, luckily not litigating over my own contracts, others, I've had a lot of experience with this, and I can tell you that courts will find one year reasonable, okay? So if you've already given the one year warranty, which most have, and I totally encourage it, you don't have to, but I think it's a really good practice, what you wanna do is make sure you tie in the outer limit for lawsuits to the same period. So you say you give a one-year warranty, and then later on say all claims and all causes of action, including warranty, expire at the end of the one-year period, okay? That closes a door from another case from, I think it's 2007, that split out, and I'm not gonna get into it because it's kind of mind-boggling because the judges didn't even really understand it, to be honest. They're homeowners who were like, yeah, I don't really know what this means. But what they did in this case about a, against a cider, the cider gave a one-year warranty, and he was sued in year three, okay? It was 
apartments, the apartment owners or condo owners sued the general. We've all seen this happen. The general then goes ahead and sues all the subs. So the cider wasn't sued until three years out. And what did the cider say? He had a one-year warranty. Uh, probably what everyone in here is thinking, well, wait, three is more than one. Um, I'm not good at math, but I can do that. And at the trial court level, the trial court judge said, yeah, you're right, you're done. But at the appeals level, what they said is, you know, there's something that could be different. The warranty's in the contract, but what happened if you, Cider, breached the underlying contract? And everyone goes, hmm, well, what is that? There's this warranty thing, and then there's this contract thing. The judges didn't really know, but the, what they said is, if the lapping's incorrect, or you've put a piece of whatever upside down, that's not really a warranty issue, because a warranty issue is something you can come out and fix. The simplest would be kind of nail pop stuff, right? If you've screwed up something fundamentally wrong, that could be an underlying breach of the whole contract. You were hired to put on siding and put on the paper. You didn't put on the paper. That's not a breach of warranty, that's a breach of contract. So, why is Seth rambling about this? Because you want to tie those together. So, go ahead, give your one-year warranty, that's great. You could give two, you could give none. But whatever you're gonna do, I think for contractors, you'd be mildly crazy not to limit all claims and all causes of action to that same one-year period. And then what you've done is you've shut down that loop that the case of the cider gave that said, ha the warranty may be one year, but you can still get sued in year two, three, four, five, and six. See that for math there? You still have more time. As an aside, I have not reviewed uh, the BIAW contracts, um, and so I don't, I'm, I'm not going to be commenting on those today. I'm going to try to um, kind of tell you what I think the keys are. And the other thing I'm going to try to do is to tell you a little bit of a perspective of an owner, of a, of a, of a homeowner. Now, maybe people don't want to hear that, but you're going to be asked hard questions. That's why I like doing this, because I, I, you can all ask me questions and I can say, well, sort of, maybe it depends, or just kind of run away. Whereas, you know, in court, it's much harder to do that, so I, I enjoy this, this is fun. Um, but the, the issue is that um, you want to make absolutely sure that um, you're very clear in your contract, whatever you use, if you start with one from Home Depot or somewhere else, to tailor it to the specific Washington rules. Um, another thing is you want to make sure that any work that you do during the warranty provision doesn't extend the term of the warranty or the full suit limitation period, which is tied together, okay? And you just spell that out. You basically just say um, that it, 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 interim work does not extend that. Um, a couple other things here. Um, venue. I recommend, you can choose the venue by contract. and. If you do a lot of work in King County, but maybe you have one or two projects that aren't, um, I would still strongly consider King County. Um, if you do most of your work up in Snohomish, you, you wanna do it there. You wanna do most of your work um, in Clark, you wanna do it there. But you can specify a venue. I prefer this for my clients because I like King County's uh, e-filing systems and I think it's pretty efficient, especially if you're in a county, uh, if one of my clients is where the courts are not very open to technology. They're all supposed to be. They all got a lot of money from the Biden and Trump. Um, there was different federal plans, and so they're much more wired. But a lot of them are kind of being jerks about it now. They're like, no, you come down here. You have to do that. It's going to speed things up, and you can't say no. So I think that's an important thing. Um, number four, 
is uh, escalation and milestones. I don't have a lot here, but really what I wanted to um, kind of go through is be careful, obviously, with when you're going to start, when you're going to complete, and all the rest. I mean, as best as you can here, I think it's good to be a little bit mushy. Your clients aren't going to necessarily like that, but you can try to be a little bit mushy and just say things such as, you know, in a reasonable time, job site's got to be ready, it's got to be prepared, things like that. I'd, I'd be a little wary of being pinned down to dates. That's, that's about the simple uh, issue here. The milestones, if you're doing it on a fixed price agreement, um, you know, when, where, and how specifically you're going to get uh, which draw, just make that really clear. Um, and then, you know, I, I skim over this. It's by far the most popular topic, escalation clause for material, for labor, and all the rest. Those of you who are doing time and materials, often also called cost plus, a phrase I don't love, but I like time and materials better, we won't get into why. Same idea, you don't have this problem, but for fixed price, obviously you do. And unless you're doing lots of allowances, how are you gonna handle this is really, is really the question. So just make it really clear. There's a couple simple ways to basically say, hey, we'll let you, I mean, you gotta be fair with the consumer too. You can't just say, hey, the cost tripled. You gotta give them advanced notice and let them out if it's gonna be too high. But just make sure there's a number of different ways to do it. I mean, I think this is a topic, since it's relatively new, even though it's been around, it's very much on the forefront of everyone's mind. You wanna be expressly clear in it um, and how dates are made up. If they slip, try to outline in this, this in the contract as much as you can. Um, this is another one I'm gonna kinda move through because we've got a lot more meaty ones towards the, uh, towards the end. Uh, guaranteed max prices, um, just be extremely clear, especially about what you're gonna do about pre-existing conditions and inspections. And here's, here's one that's plucked from uh, a contract I typically like, one of the short ones. And again, I think for the terms and conditions, you can do a page. That's kind of compressed. And Joseph's thinking, in what font, Seth? Now you're telling me something entirely different. And, um, you know, it depends. You're never going to hit everything. And what you just don't want is to scare homeowners, right? That's what none of, none of you want. You don't want to come in with a book and say, I don't really know what's in here, but you've got to sign it. And so it's a fine balance, and you're never going to be perfect with it. But as long as you realize that, I think for the general conditions, I think it can be a page. Um, we're going to talk at the end of something I know you all know because you're extremely educated contractors about the notice to customer. That would be another page. And the scope, depending on how you do it, could be another page. But, you know, pretty much a, a page can do it. And that's not, a, you know, a, a custom build of nowadays two million. I wouldn't recommend that. But I've seen it done and it actually was kind of helpful um, in a range of, you know, zero to around 100,000. And I'm making up that number. Today's day and age, it's probably 150. I think around a page uh, could do it. But I think if you're gonna be sketching out any parameters for how you're doing your contract, please have something about unforeseen conditions. I mean, we all know if something pops up that you didn't know about, you're gonna say, hey, you gotta pay me more. But the more clearly you can put it in the contract, the better, okay? This is the area, whether it's T&M, whether it's fixed price, where the problems are. You have to make the change order provision, again, separate document, but you need to outline how you're going to administer it in the contract. And there's a lot of ways to do it. Be clear when the pricing, when it's due, what the me method is for it, 
how much is going to delay the project, what that's going to do to, uh, to the schedule. Be really, really, really clear. So what you can do is you can actually make the change order clause in the contract not super big, because we're trying to get to that page, page and a half for jobs under, call it 200,000. In the contract, you're going to outline the procedure for administering the, the change orders. What you could do is you could, you could attach a sample change order to the contract, and that could have more of the issues in it. But if you're springing it for the first time, this would lengthen it if you're going to add a sample change order, but I think it's a really good idea to do because you can put some of the provisions in there. And I'm not putting Jackson on the spot. I do not know how um, the BIAW contract suite handles that. And um, I'd be interested to, to, to know, though, um, because there's a lot of different ways. But I, I think it's best to spell it out clearly, clearly, clearly in the contract. Disputes and remedies, extremely, extremely, extremely important. If you leave here with two things tonight, this is actually the first thing <laughs> I almost always ask about when someone calls up with an issue because uh, it's, it's just not cheap to litigate. Uh, Nathan and I were talking about that before. Everyone knows it. Everything you've heard, it's even worse than probably what you've heard. Uh, that's not a point of pride other than if you can uh, avoid it. Um, do it. You can't always. But this can definitely bite you in the ass if you have it or if you don't, just like anything. In the event of a dispute, the parties must meet in good faith and attempt to resolve their differences. You don't have to have that. I think it's good, right? You'd try that anyhow. I can tell everyone in here is reasonable people. And so they would try that. It's good to have that as a prerequisite. A lot of contracts in here, I'm sure the Office Depot have uh, mediation as a precondition. Um, I'm not a huge fan of that because there's a time and a place where you need to mediate. Sometimes in the beginning, the feet aren't to the fire yet and it's expensive and sometimes it's a waste. And so don't waste yet. You, you and the other, the, your lawyer and their lawyer could always agree on it ahead of time. So this first sentence is just a nice feel good. And that's the other thing. We want to present our contracts in a, um, a plain English and feel good way so people aren't kind of automatically on the defensive. I think about my parents, they're in their 80s. If someone gave more than half a page, I don't think they'd go anywhere with it. So that's one of the other reasons. You guys live it every day. I'm just guessing that that's a, that's a deal, especially on you know, smaller jobs where people say, why am I getting all these words? But here it is. The prevailing party shall be entitled to an award of its, and reasonables in parentheses, we'll come back to it, attorney's fees and costs, including experts. That can be really important because experts are um, by far the most important part of a, of a good case. Um, and um, reasonable is an interesting one. I'm not going to dwell on it too much. Most of the time, judges and or arbitrators have so much discretion that they're going to go with what they feel is reasonable. They just are. You know, if someone has um, a hundred thousand dollar tab, which I've seen, it's, it hasn't been me, but I've seen it on a ten thousand dollar case and then wins and then applies for the $100,000. Because, let me back up a, a step here. The American rule, anyone, anyone who's been to seminars, that's why I'm trying not to overlap too much with a lot of the really good seminars, know what the American rule is, is that both sides pay their own fees, attorney's fees, in the absence of a clause that says who pays, or a statute. And the lien statute allows it. The lien statute is May, okay? So May is discretionary, meaning you could win and you have a lien, and the judge says, I'm gonna allow you to foreclose, and your lawyer and you say, hot dog, it was a $50,000 lien, we have a $100,000 attorney's fee, this attorney's great, and the judge could easily, under the lien statute, say, 
um, say no, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to award the fees. This, they 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 would have to. It can, it can get a little dicey um, on uh, who prevails if there's counterclaims. That can get dicey. Uh, lien waivers and notices. The second most important thing you already know this is this. I'm just going to say it because it just feels good to say is this form needs to be signed and dated before work starts on every residential job when you're contracting directly with the owner. Okay, so that and the prevailing party attorney's fees clause. If you have two takeaways. Uh, make sure that you have those two. Um, indemnification is a little bit complex. I know I've had a few things done on my condo, and I asked for very little. I knew the contractor, uh, someone who owed me money. <laughs> and uh, they did a great job, of course, right? But I didn't even want to contract with them, so I'm, I'm kind of a hypocrite. But I just said, hey, if one of your workers is hurt, as you all know, because you pay into uh, workman's comp in Washington, they can't sue you, you're immune. But if they sue me, I wanna be able to turn around to you and say, take care of it. And that is uh, legitimate and a lot of owners will ask for it. I think if I'm a lot of contractors, I'm probably offended by it, but I gotta say, uh, you know, this isn't necessarily the crowd to say it, I think it's an extremely reasonable request. And um, I wouldn't take it offensively if someone comes up with it um, because it's kind of the way, it, it, it's, a, it's a screwed up system because we have a payor payee system and it leaves an area that is just complicated. I'm not saying good or bad, but if someone asks, feel free to give me a call. I'll just talk you through it and we can figure out. There's a couple nice tweaks you can do to this. Number 10, we're not gonna get to these. These are probably the ones you would be more interested in um, I have a miscellaneous section here. What I want you to be thinking of is what simple things can I absolutely dial in that will make my next job easier. Here's just a stupid example I picked out of nowhere. Outlet access is required for exterior projects. It only takes up five words. You can still get it into that one page. Simple, simple things. Uh, the lead paint testing. Um, this is a little legalese, number one, that the contractor's not the drafter of it because Washington has a rule that contracts are uh, construed against the drafter. This is saying, hey, we both have the chance to draft it, right, buddy? Just things I want you to think about that you should plug in. And so typically what I do when I uh, get a call, someone wants a contract, even a short one, is I give examples on a separate page and then really want to put the burden on you guys who are out there, what you're going to do about storage, what you're going to do about dumpsters. Um, what is an additional insured? We're not really going to get into it. Uh, to be honest, I think I might have asked for this too. You probably heard this term. It would probably be offensive if someone said, hey, I want to be an additional insured on your policy. I think from an owner's perspective, it's incredibly reasonable. What that means is, you this is a stupid example, but you as the contractor cause a tree to fall on a neighbor's yard. Neighbor has to sue owner. If you've named the owner as an additional insured, so you have to check with your broker, and a lot of the policies allow it. The owner could go directly to your policy because it's now theirs also as an additional insured and say, hey, this dude's suing me, take care of it. So it's when a third party, someone else, not you or the contractor sues, you can get it taken care of. Uh, are we uh, yeah. officially out of time and Nathan's gonna close it, I think? Yep. Yeah. All right, thank you, Joseph, Jackson, and especially Seth for your time and knowledge tonight. Uh, let's give them a clap of hands.